Well, the Apostle Paul was angry. There was no doubt about it. In fact, he was so angry that he could barely get through a brief introduction to his letter to the churches at Galatia uh, without completely unloading and delivering this really severe rebuke. And the reason that he was angry was because the Galatians had begun to reject the gospel message that he had first preached to them in order to receive a false gospel uh, given to them and taught to them by a group known as the Judaizers. And so Paul, trying to defend his gospel message at the beginning of chapter 1, he began to defend his own position as an apostle. His idea was simply this. His idea was if he could make sure and prove that he was a legitimate messenger sent by Jesus Christ, then it would demonstrate legitimacy of the gospel message that he was preaching. So here's what he did in the very first 10 verses of of chapter 1. He basically said, I have delivered to you the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody who comes after me preaching a different gospel, adding to it or taking away from it, let them be accursed because it is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, now what Paul is going to do in the remainder of chapter 1 is he's going to continue to defend his gospel message, the gospel message that he presented. And, And we see that, we pick up in verse 11. Look at your Bibles with me, if you will. He says this, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's already made this point. He's making it again, and he's going to make it again before we're done with chapter 1 and in chapter 2. His point is simply this. The true gospel message of Jesus Christ is not a man-made message. No man has made it up. It wasn't delivered from one to the other. Some guy wasn't in a back room pontificating on the meaning of life and came up with it. This was a supernatural divine message that was presented to the Apostle Paul by Jesus Christ himself. That's what he continues to argue all the way through this. Now, it's interesting because that's the statement he makes, but now he's going to prove it. See, it's one thing to make a claim like that. It's another thing to be able to prove it to those who are listening that what you say is actually true. And so we would might expect that he might try to prove it by listing a whole long list of, of Old Testament scriptures as to use as a proof text to show that what he's saying is correct. Or he could begin to wax eloquent, all kinds of deep theological truths that just blow away uh, uh, the, uh, the false teachers and really leave uh, the Gentile people, or the, the, um, the Galatians, just amazed at his deep thinking. But he doesn't do any of this. You know how he proves the power of the gospel and that it's divine? He merely shares his testimony. His testimony. Every true believer in Jesus Christ has a testimony. A testimony is a story of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Every true believer has one. And there's three parts to it. The first part is who I was before God saved me. The second part is how God brought about that change, how we went about saving you. And then the third part is how my life has changed since coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what the reason that Paul does this is because he understands, and we need to understand, that the greatest evidence that the gospel message is truly from God is the transformed lives of those who have placed their faith in it. 
You and I, the greatest evidence that what we study and what we preach and what we proclaim is true is a transformed life, a life that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Lord's Supper today, but before we do, we're going to walk through um, really the, the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. There's three parts to his testimony, who Paul was, what God did, and how Paul changed him. So number one, who Paul was. Look at verse 13, if you will. The Bible says, for you have heard of my former life. Note that, my former life in in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous for, uh, uh, for this or for the traditions of my father's. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul will later say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To really understand what Paul means by that, you have to understand where he came from. Uh, where he lived, what he was like before God ultimately saved him. His former life, as Paul says it. See, Paul was a Jewish Pharisee, which means he was an expert in the Jewish law. Uh, when I mean, when I'm talking about Jewish uh, Judaism, I'm talking about uh, the man-made system by which a person tries to achieve a right standing and righteousness before God by doing a bunch of things, by following a bunch of laws, by following a bunch of rules and a bunch of rituals. And when I say law, understand and when Paul says laws he's not merely speaking of the Mosaic law that is God's law that he had passed down to Moses and then passed down to Israel that is God's law he's also including here uh, man-made laws uh, Jewish laws uh, that they would build it's like a fence of laws around the law of God if you were afraid that if you were to break a law of God and that would separate you God from, from God from all eternity then you're going to do everything you can not to break that law so they had a safeguard, and that was all of these rules around the law. This is kind of how it would work. Say on the Sabbath day, you came over to uh, my house, and, and you ate something, and there was something weird inside your food. And you didn't want to <laughs> be rude, so you, you <clears throat> let me go, and you went outside, and you spit whatever it was in your mouth across the parking lot, and you were like, that was vile, that was disgusting. But then you remembered it was a Sabbath day. And then you begin to think, well, wait a minute, I can't violate the Sabbath day by working on the Sabbath day. Was my spitting, is that, is that conducive to working? Did I just break the Sabbath day? So then that gentleman would go down, by the way, this is an actual law. And so he would go down to his rabbi and he'd go, hey, did I break the law or did I not break the law? And he'd sit there, let me confer with my other rabbis. And so they'd go back to the rabbis and they'd all talk amongst the rabbis and they'd come back and then they'd have this official statement. And they would say something to this effect. They would say, well, it all depends on how you spit. See, here's the deal. If you spit and it didn't rotate more than one half of rotation when it landed in the dirt, then you're good. That's not breaking the law. But if it rotated more than half a rotation, then you're sunk. You broke the law of God. And so these were actual laws, and there were literally hundreds of them. And what we find is that Paul was an expert in all of it. He knew all of it. He had memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. He knew all the laws, all those things in Leviticus that you and I can barely even read through. He he memorized, he understood the meaning of every one of those, and he was an expert in all of these man-made 
laws. He knew it all. He studied underneath uh, a great rabbi. He, 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 he outdid all of his peers in his knowledge of these things and his explanation of these particular laws. And so he was zealous in all that he did. But it wasn't just in what he learned. This was his life. This is what he lived. He, he just didn't know him. He followed every single law uh, by the T to the T. Every, every T crossed, every I dotted. And, and, and he would follow these things. And in fact, he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, describing his life before he was saved, he said concerning the law, he says, as to righteousness under the law, that is, by obtaining, trying to obtain righteousness, by following each of these little minuscule laws, he says, I was righteous. I was righteous. I, I didn't fail at anyone. So this is a man that's clearly zealous. He's a man that thinks, hey, look, this is the way you're right for God, and guess what? I was able to succeed. I'm good enough. I meet God's standard. I do it all. And if you know people who are this type of legalistic, you know they're no fun to be around. They are angry, they are bitter, they are divisive, and they are destructive. Why? Because they keep holding you to standards that even God doesn't hold you to. And so here's what he ends up doing. He ends up going away, and he begins to pick on a bunch of group called the way, which are the Christians during the day. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we read, but, but Saul, that was Paul as well, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. And then in chapter 9, we read, but Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then the text continues on to the fact that he was responsible for the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. You say, well, he never even threw any stones. Well, he didn't have to. Uh, what the, these guys that were going to stone this, first, this Christian, the first Christian martyr, he stood there and all of these men took their cloaks off so they can really wind up to kill this guy and they put them down at the feet of a man by the name of Saul, who was Paul, which meant he was the one presiding over all of this. It was by his authority and his blessing that they actually got the go-ahead to be able to kill this man. This is who Paul was. Paul hated the gospel. And the reason that he hated Christians in the gospel is because it struck against his own conscience. His whole life was based on being good enough before God, thinking that you could succeed. And then when the gospel comes along, they keep telling people, bro, you can't live up to God's standard. What do you mean I can't live up to God's standard? And it angered him. And so he was so zealous that he decided that he was going to stamp, stamp out this movement called the way, these Christians, by imprisoning them and putting them to death. It's very strange that this man can be so good in every single aspect, aspect, following every single little detail and every single little rule, but at the same time be so blinded by his own self-righteousness that he is guilty of some of the most heinous sins of imprisoning, beating, and putting uh, innocent people to death. This is incredible to me. And what Paul is demonstrating to us really is just how lost he was. Isn't it interesting how... You and I sometimes can, can have a tendency of determining and rating the savability of other people. Ever do that? Well, you, you may not actually verbalize it, but you know, there are those kinds of folks when the preacher sits there and goes, man, we really gotta be faithful in preaching the gospel and everybody feels guilty about that. And you're like, yeah, let's go tell people about Jesus Christ. And then we look for the most innocent person we can who's doing all of the right things. We, we look for the morally upstanding, good working, good husband, good wife, good parents, uh, good student, good citizen. And we think to ourselves, hey, that's the one. He's probably close already. At least he's going in the right direction of Jesus. This should be pretty simple. I can really see this guy coming to faith in Christ. 
Uh, then there are those that, let's just admit, are a little rougher around the edges, right? You look at them and you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this one. Uh, uh, everything about them is rough. They're bad language, bad behavior, bad reputation. And you don't actually verbalize this, but in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, it's going to take a miracle to save this guy. And I'm not so sure I'm the one that wants to share the gospel because he might kill me, right? That's how, you're, that's how we're thinking through this. So we think the one who is most outwardly, overtly sinful, almost out of touch, very difficult to say, but those who seem to be more self-righteous and, and doing the right thing seem to be more savable. When you look at the word of God, the Bible says it's almost the reverse. Do you, do you remember the story of um, the prodigal son? Right? And we all live, oh yeah, I was, I was, people were like, I, I, was the pro, I was that prodigal son. All right? Well, I was the prodigal son. I was the older brother. See, the story really has two primary points to it. And that is, or the primary point is this, is that there's two ways to hell. There's two ways to hell. One way to hell is to be overtly sinful. That is to sit back and do whatever it is that you want, be able to sin, to be able to live up life. And this was illustrated through this young son. This young son said, Dad, I don't have anything to do with you. Give me my money. I'm going to go out and I'm going to sin and I'm going to be really, really good at it. There is no sin that I'm not going to participate in. And the point of it is he's lost. He's rebelled against his, his father. But there's a second way, the Bible says, a second path uh, to hell, and that is a way of self-righteousness. This is illustrated by the older brother. The older brother comes in and he's the guy, he's the rule follower. He follows all the laws. He does everything right. He stayed at home. He worked hard. He did what his father ultimately told him. But at the end of the story, where is he? The overtly disobedient son is broken over his sin because he's more apt to see it. He can't deny it. And he ends up coming back to the father saying, Father, forgive me. Where is the older brother? Nowhere to be found. He refuses to go in and fellowship with the father. What's the key to understanding this text? The key is the context. If you look at the context, you find out that when Jesus is telling this parable, it is because the Pharisees, men just like Paul, were judging Jesus for being around these uh, overtly sin sinful people, these prostitutes, these drunkards, and they're all out there, and they're sitting there going, how could he spend any time with them? And Jesus' really conclusion is letting them know, hey man, I didn't come, he says this is at a different point, but he says, I didn't come for the well, for the healthy, I came for the sick. Now, here's what's interesting about what Jesus was saying. Everybody is sick. The difference is there are some who know it and there are some who don't know it. Those are the people who are ultimately self-righteous. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, Paul comes around and he says, hey, listen, I'm that guy. I was the self-righteous guy. I was a guy that thought I had it all together. I thought that I did everything right according to law, but I found out that I wasn't. So we've got some, here's what's happening through this whole study of the book of Galatians. We're confronting, making sure we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's what we need to understand. But we're also being confronted with it because even today there are some folks that are saying, saying, well, why would Paul add this to this text? Here's why. Because there are some here who are overtly sinful. Overtly sinful. In other words, uh, you live your life based on eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No real meaning in life. Just let's go after it. Let's do whatever we can to be able to satisfy the flesh and do what's right in our own eyes. It's the younger brother. And, and you sit there and you're thinking to yourself, and I'm going to preach this message of grace that you can't earn your way to salvation. You're going to sit there and go, but I'm not good enough. I, 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 can't, I can't be good enough before God in order to be saved. And I'm going to sit there and say, you're absolutely right, but God's grace is sufficient for you. 
Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a gentleman that I talked to, not even here at the church, and he just goes, hey man, the message you're sharing is really good, but it's not for me. I said, why is it not for you? He goes, bro, you have no idea the things I've done. You have no idea the sins that I've committed. You have no idea the things I've seen, that I've looked at, that I've taken part in, that I've lived at. There's no way that God could save me. And I was preparing for the study on Galatians, and I just simply said, I said, well, let me ask you, man, when's the last time that you imprisoned people? When's the last time that you beat people? When's the last time that you forced them to denounce their faith in Christ? When's the last time you sat around and you commanded people to be able to put someone to death by stoning and you became a mass murderer? And they go, bro, I haven't done any of those things. And I said, then guess what? If God can save Paul, God can save you. But then, here's what we have on the other side. Then we have folks who are here that are like, I didn't do any of that. I didn't do any of that. I'm scared of my mom. I'm scared of my dad. I don't like getting in trouble at school. I sit in the front seat, just like this man down here. I like to be a good man. I like to be a good guy. That's why we can never get anybody to front and sit in the front seat, isn't it? Because I pointed out. Anyway, and so, so he says, I'm just, I'm just a good guy. And maybe that's the way you feel. In fact, that's what seems to be so ridiculous about the gospel message. When you sit there and somebody says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In your mind, you keep thinking to myself, well, I haven't been that bad. Yeah, I haven't been perfect, but I'm not as bad as Mussolini. I'm not as mad, I'm not as, if, look it up historically, I'm not as bad as some of these people. I'm really just not all that ultimately bad. Here's the good news for you. The power of the gospel is powerful enough to even save you in all of your self-righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter where you are. Paul said, I was the hardest, I was the most difficult. Paul actually said, he goes, I was the chief of sinners. And there's no doubt that he said that in his testimony to demonstrate because he was a persecutor of the church and he put them to death. But I also believe it was because he was so steep and so confused about his own self-righteousness that he was saying to himself, hey man, if God can save me, he can certainly save you wherever you fall on that parameter. So look at this. He first begins to tell us uh, at first that this is who he was. It's just the first part of a testimony. The second part of a testimony is this, what God did. Look at verse 15. But when he, this is when we get a lot of uh, uh, tension. So if you like tension, here we go. We're about to start it in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Thank God for that little word, but. I didn't say the little but, quit giggling, all right? I just said that little word, but, that conjunction, B-U-T. Thank God for that. Here's his testimony. He's giving a testimony. Listen to how he's saying it. Hey, ma'am, he goes, he goes, I was full of pride, full of arrogance, full of self-righteousness. I literally believed that I was good enough to be able to meet God's holy, righteous standard. And at the same time I was doing it, I was going out city after city, arresting people, imprisoning them, and putting people to death. In fact, I was actually walking down this road. It's called the Damascus Road. I think you're familiar with it. I was actually going down to persecute even more Christians, but God, God showed up out of nowhere. 
I was pursuing sin with everything that I was worth. I didn't know any different. I thought I was doing the right thing. But God showed up in the midst of all of that. We actually hear his testimony in Acts chapter 9. Let me read it to you. But Paul, see see if you can see this but God part. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of, of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any, any belonging to the way, the way was just what they called Christians at the time, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he, he approached Damascus and suddenly light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Many times in, in, in our testimony, if you've ever shared it, here's what we say usually in one part of it. Well, it was at this time that I found God. It was at this time in my life that I ended up coming to faith in him. I found him. I, I learned about him, and I, and, and I repented, and I, and, 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 I, and I received him as my savior. The truth of the matter is, is that's a decent way to be able to share a gospel. But it's not, it's not, it's from our perspective, not God's perspective. God's perspective is not that, hey, guess what? You searched hard enough and you were able to find God. The answer, the gospel message is that God found you. That's the point of the text. That's what Paul is saying. You didn't, you didn't find him. He found you. He initiated this whole thing. I love what Karl Barth said, a 20th century theologian. He said, true Christians are the victim of a successful surprise attack by God. I love that. Out of nowhere. I think of my buddy Jay. Uh, I've shared this, this story with you before, but after 14 years of preaching to you, I have to repeat an illustration every once in a while. And you didn't remember it the first time. So let me say it a second time. Uh, my buddy Jay was a single guy. He was in his 20s. He, he um, it was working just kind of a minimum wage job. No problem at all. But he was living at home with his mom and dad. And, uh, and he had the opportunity. Some friends of his, married couple, uh, decided that they were going to invite him over and uh, let him watch uh, their house, house seat for them, house sit for them for the weekend. Now, if you still live with your parents in your late 20s and somebody invites you over to house sit, you're like hitting gold, right? And so he took them right up on it. He goes, I'll do it. I'll be there. He goes, he, they go, we don't have a whole lot of money to pay. And he goes, I don't care. I'll do it for free. So he shows up, walks through the front door. There's a little table over to the side. He walks in. There's a thank you card there. He picks it up. He begins to read it. He says, hey, Jay, thank you so much for coming and visiting and watching after the house. They, then at the end, he says, enjoy. Now, the enjoy Joy had to do with all the drugs that were on the table next to him. There were all the dr- drugs that he goes, the whole thing was filled up with drugs. And he sat there and he thought to himself, man, this is going to be a great weekend. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go freshen up and then I'm going to get high from Friday all the way until late Sunday. And then I'm going to get up and go to work. This is going to be awesome. He says, so I decided to freshen up. And he goes, so I went and I took a bath. And I go, at this point, I go, a bath? Why are you taking a bath in someone else's house? That was my first thing. He goes, dude, back to the story. So get back to the story. And he goes, yeah, man, I was just sitting there taking a bath. And as I was just taking a bath, he goes, man, I was just thinking about what drugs I kind of wanted to take first. And I was kind of like putting in order which ones I wanted, what kind of high I wanted to experience. And he goes, and then out of nowhere, but God, all of a sudden, thoughts of my godly grandmother who had raised me for a portion of my life began to come back to my memory. And then she had made me memorize all of these scriptures out of the Bible, even when I didn't want to. And all of a sudden, all those scriptures begin to flood back. And the next thing I know, before I can even get out of the tub, he goes, I'm calling on the mercy of God to save me right there and then. What, what was he doing? 
Exactly like Paul. He goes, man, I'm going to go my way. I'm going I'm to live a life of sin. I'm going to do my thing, but God. I would love to be able to open up the, 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 a microphone and just one Sunday and just go, hey, man, can you just tell us your but God story? Can you just tell us kind of what happened? Here's, I think, what someone would be. They'd be, hey, man, I identify with Paul, bro. I, was, I thought I had my whole life figured out. I think I knew what I was doing. I, had my, I knew how many kids I was going to have, what kind of woman I was going to marry, but God. And then some others are like, man, I have one plan in my entire life. My whole plan was just to have a good time and just to be able to enjoy it. And I just took part of every possible sinful inclination that I possibly can, but God. And then some of us, many of us, including myself, would sit back and go, hey, man, for me, I was in church and truthfully is I was self-righteous and I really, really believed that I was good enough by all the things that I were doing and better than the other people that I could be accepted by God. But God, through a sermon or through a message or through his word, convicted me and I called out for the mercy and the grace of God. This is, this is what we have here. This is what the word of God is talking about. And what I love is Paul is saying, hey, this is my but God story. This is what I did. But God did this for me. What did he do? He saved him. Now, that's what he did for him. Now, he's going to get, this is where it gets sticky. But then he's going to tell him how he did it. How he gave him salvation. How he saved him. Notice the next line. Look, it says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. This is where it gets messy. This is where everybody's like, hmm, I wonder what he's going to say about that line. Well, here's what I'm going to say about it. Paul came to the point that he realized that there was nothing he could have possibly have done to earn his salvation. Why? Because God chose him before he was ever born. How could you ever do anything that earns your salvation if God, in his sovereign will, chooses you before you were ever born? And that's what Paul does. And he also comes to understand in the midst of this that he was keenly aware of how sinful he actually was through his own self-righteousness and his own prosperity in, the church, in his own persecution of the church. So not only could he have not earned it because God began his salvation before he was born, but guess what? He, he couldn't earn it when he tried to earn it because everything he ended up doing fell short of God's standard. So here's what he comes to understand. By God choosing him before he was ever born for salvation, he, he, he came to understand that neither, neither he could earn, he could neither earn his salvation, nor did he deserve salvation. Now here's what's going on. We've got all kinds of people flipping out right now. We've got Calvinists that are going, amen. And then we've got people who are not Calvinists on the other side that are far more Arminian going, whoa, what about, what about oh, your, your own free will? What about all of that? And then, and then there's a group of people that are neither Arminian nor are they Calvinistic. Instead, there's some strange conglomeration of monster in between. Do I have an amen for that? And you're like, yeah, I don't really believe that. Yeah, sovereign, yeah, I get that. And then over here, no, the guy's got to call out. I don't know, I'm really confused. And then there's a whole group of people in here that go, I don't have a cotton-picking idea what in the world you're saying. But let me just say this. You can parse this out and apply it whatever way you want to be able to apply it to your life. But you must have a soteriology. That's an understanding of your salvation. You must understand this. You did not first choose him. He first chose you, period. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this. 
He said God didn't choose, he goes on, or, or, or we have to understand that God didn't choose Paul because uh, Paul pleased God, or that's, that's in the next step. Sorry, let me back up. Charles Spurgeon said this, it's a good thing that God chose me before I was born because he certainly wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. Amen? So he tells us what he did. He saved him. He tells him how he saved him. By what? By his own divine choice. Then he, then, listen to this, then he tells us why. Isn't that the question we always want to know? When you begin to really become overwhelmed by God's grace and go, why did God save me? Why did he reveal his son to me? What did, what did I do? Well, it's not because of what you did. It's in spite of what you did. He actually gives us this answer, if you've ever asked this question. Verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. God didn't choose Paul because Paul pleased God. That's clear. God saved Paul because it pleased God to do so. Let me say it in another way. I've got to say it in several different ways so you get it. Tim Keller said it this way. God set his loving grace on Paul not because he was worthy of it, but simply because God took delight in doing so. He said, why did God save me? He just loved saving you. He's in the, he's in the saving business. Well, yeah, but what did I do? Nothing. You mean he just chose to save me and he did that? And he reached out? Yes. Well, didn't I repent and believe? Yes, but why? Because he loved you, he pursued you, he called you, he drew you. This, this is the loving God that we have. If you don't believe it, listen to what Paul, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 through 8. He says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be, this is Moses speaking, chosen you to be the people of God for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than all the other people that the Lord set, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Simply put, here it is. Why does God love them that he saves? He loves us simply because he loves us. That's the answer. So I don't like that answer. I struggle with that answer. I don't like people giving me stuff that I don't work with. I want to be able to work. I want to be able to earn something. I don't take nothing. Right? This reminds me of a story when I was in, in, in college, Palm Beach Atlantic College. Um, it's now Palm Beach Atlantic University. Go sailfish. And um, <laughs> when we were there, uh, the, uh, I, I was in the theater department. Don't judge. Um, I know I'm making fun of a guy taking baths and I'm in the theater department. And so, so anyway, I was in the theater department and there was a show that came to what's called the Kravis Center, which is a performing arts center in Palm Beach, in the heart of Palm Beach. Beautiful facility. Very expensive to be able to go to the shows there. And there was a show uh, called The Secret Garden that I just really wanted to be able to go to. Didn't have the money to. as a poor college student. And, uh, and we were all kind of sitting in this room. It's kind of like a, a theater. And all of a sudden, one of our favorite professors ended up coming in. And he beelined to a guy that I knew. Didn't know him well, but to a guy that I knew. And he walked right up to him. And he goes, hey, man, I got two tickets tonight. Two tickets right on the front row, man. They're awesome tickets. You can't get any better tickets than this. And I just want to give them to you. I was just thinking about you. just want to give you these tickets. And he sat there and go, well, why, why, why are you giving them to me? He goes, well, you, you just crossed my mind. And so I just thought that maybe you would enjoy them. And so I wanted to be able to give you the tickets. And he goes, yeah, but, but he goes, but I, what, did I do something to deserve these tickets? And, he, and of course, I'm listening, you know, from like across the room. And he's like, he goes, he goes no, you didn't really, not that I think of. He goes, I just really thought of you and just thought that you would enjoy it. So I'd like you to go. And he goes, well, how much do you want for him? He goes, 
they're, they're not for sale. I'm, I'm trying to give them to you. Just take them. And he goes, no, man. He goes, I'm not going to take anything that I didn't earn. I'm not going to take anything that I can't pay for. There's no way. I just don't want it. And the guy sat there and goes, look, bro, you're either going to take them or I'm going to give them to somebody else. And he goes, man, you're just going to have to give it to somebody else. And right then, it, without a beat, I go, I'll take them. I'll take them. I was right there. I'll take them. And he goes, do you really want them? I go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll take them. Just, just give them to me. Just give them to me. And then the guy that was sitting over there that was like so full of pride, he goes, you're just going to take those tickets? I go, yeah, that's right. I'm just going to take those tickets. <laughs> and he goes, and I go, man, they're worth like 120 bucks a piece. And they go, you're just going to let them go. He goes, yeah, I'll take those. And he goes, how could you do that? You didn't even work or do anything for them. I know. I go, I, I go I'm not great, but he is. I go, he, he's great. He goes, I sing his praise. Man, this is amazing. You're, you're great. He said, what did you do? Well, that night, guess what? I went to the secret garden. I sat in a place that I could never ultimately afford. I enjoyed something that I would have never had the privilege to be able to see. I just enjoyed myself. And if anybody asked me how I got there, I kept saying, well, let me tell you a story about a guy who got me here. And he received all the praise and the honor and the glory. Do you get that? And so the same exact way with us, let me, let me just encourage you, don't you let your pride stand in the way of receiving God's free gift of eternal life. No, you don't deserve it, and no, you can't earn it. He will give it to you simply because he loves you. Receive it, shower with him in praise, and enjoy it. That's the gospel message. Now, there's a third part, and we're going to go very, very quickly. I've got to do this in three minutes because we've got Lord's Supper, so hang with me. Listen quicker. Here we go. Third point, last part of anybody's testimony is how my life changed. This is very important, by the way. Some people, you you hear a testimony and you're like, dude, I don't even know if there's any good news in that. You told me like nine hours of really garbage stuff that you took part in. And then they're like, then God saved me. Then what happened? Oh, I joined a church. And then that's it. We want to know what happened. What did God do? in you and through you after you were born again. Well, he's going to add that. In verse 16, he says, I, do not, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to the Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. I told you, he keeps reiterating this. What he's saying, again is hey after I was saved I didn't go to the apostles the apostles didn't teach me this message that I had I went out into the desert of Arabia where Jesus Christ himself taught me the truths that I'm now teaching you he goes I went out there so then though to prove that he actually spent that time with Jesus guess what he goes back to a transformed life transformed life look at verse 21 and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. You've got to understand where this guy was saved from, right? I mean, we got a little bit of touch, but understand when he came to faith in Christ, when God saved him, interceded uh, into his life, when he's wanting to go and sin, he got saved. There's a man by the name of Ananias that Jesus shows up and says, hey man, you need to go and talk with this guy, Saul, this guy, Paul. And if you go back and read, it's kind of humorous because Ananias is kind of like, you mean uh, Saul, the guy that keeps killing everybody? You're like, yeah, that's him. All right. God that keeps imprisoning people. Yep, okay. And then God just says, you just need to go. So he goes. Then after this, sometime later, Paul wants to meet with the apostles, the 12 disciples, right? The big weeks, wants to disciple. And they go, "Mm, no, no, we're good. 
we're really, really good. We got 12. We don't have any more openings right now. Just kind of go your way. And it says because they were afraid because of who he was. They, they didn't believe that he could really change. And then there was a young man by the name of Barnabas that comes alongside of him and he, he vouches for him, puts his arm around him and brings him in and that's how they meet. And here's what's crazy about it is, is what he's saying to these Galatians is there were a bunch of people who, he, who, who heard about Paul. They had never met him, but they knew his story. They knew he was from and they knew where he was now from. And even though they didn't know him, they began to rejoice in God and praise God and glorify him because of the radical change that it was brought about. Do people rejoice and thank God for the transformation in your life? Now that's tricky because some of us are like, well, I didn't go around killing a bunch of people. In fact, there's some of you, how many of you were saved at an early age? Saved at an early age, okay. Okay, that, that was pretty good. You did better than the first service because normally what happens is you say, who was born at a first, first It's almost like out of embarrassment. People are like, mm, yeah, it was me. I have a boring testimony. I didn't kill a bunch of people. I wish I had, but I, I, I just, I don't, I don't have that testimony. All I have is God saved me out of it. Would have been really cool. Would have written a couple books and traveled a lot, but no, how'd you get saved? Well, I was a little kid and my parents were faithful to share the gospel with me. And one day I felt convicted and came to faith in him. And I've been living for him all the time. Oh, what a bummer. This is a good thing. We do understand that it's a good thing. And you say, but it's hard for people to see that radical of a change in me because I wasn't living uh, outwardly, uh, uh, explicitly for sin. So how do we see that change? Here's the major difference they see. They see a major difference, not in who you used to be. They see a major difference in the rest of the world. What they're seeing in you is that you live for a whole different reason. You, you, you live with a completely different joy, a completely different peace, a completely different hope. You live and you take part in completely different actions. You, you live a completely different life with, with different purpose and different affections and different love. And people look at that and they may not have known who you were at one point, but they sit there and go, wow, this is radically different from everything I know. And that is the key to an effective witness. You can't witness to somebody apart from the gospel message, but you can certainly strengthen it with the transformation and demonstrating how you have been changed by that gospel message. That's what brings that authenticity and confirmation that the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is right and it's powerful to change anyone, including you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this morning. We thank you for your word. As we take a moment to be able to reflect, God, I just pray, Lord, if there be anyone here, maybe they are that person, like just out in sin and, and, and running from you. And God, I pray that maybe you will just, but God, show up in their life right now and bring them to repentance. God, that there may be some who are here that, that, that really are living in, but it's all about self-righteousness to him. Will you show them up and say the only way and demonstrate in their heart the only way for them to be saved is for them to repent and to place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that he died on a cross, he was placed in a tomb, and he was raised on the third day for us to pay for our sin debt and to reconcile us in a relationship with God by removing all of our sin. God, may that become a reality in every heart that's in here. In your precious name we pray, amen. Would you stand? We just take a moment to respond Then we're gonna take of the, observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Just bear with me, we've got time. Uh,
And so, so the altar is open, but I would love to pray with you. Let's respond right now. Let's respond.